0: Have you ever had a civil discussion with someone you disagreed with, or who had a different perspective than you? If you have, what did you learn? Here on The Moderate Review, we try to have these kinds of discussions. So, let's talk. This episode of The Moderate Review is the first of three episodes of my interview with former member of the European Parliament, Jonathan Arnott. On this episode, Jonathan talks about his experience in the European Union, how the European Union is set up, and what his day-to-day was like as a member of the European Parliament. So, let's talk. Listener's note, this interview was originally recorded on July 10th, 2022.
1: I basically believe that the Supreme Court was absolutely 100% correct to overturn Roe v. White. And I believe that basically for two reasons. One, I just think it was a bad interpretation of the US Constitution. I am very much opposed to judicial activism. And I just don't see that you can take a right to abortion up to effectively twenty-four, twenty-six weeks out of the Fourteenth Amendment to the US Constitution. I just I just don't see it's there. And the second reason, I think is just the, the more personal one, which is which is to say that I just don't believe that when a baby already has a heartbeat, when it has its organs uh, fully formed, when it has brain activity, when it has uh, fingerprints, fingernails, you know, all of those things, that that we can say that that isn't something which is a baby and has human life and has a value. So whatever your belief is on abortion, from the from the range that is there, still most of the range of beliefs require overturning Roe v. White. So I just believe that that was a bad decision at the time, both constitutionally and morally.
0: Yeah, I know. Thank you for that. We're going to hop right into this. So we'll be talking about um, the European Union as well as Brexit. And so to start off, we'll start off with, uh, and actually what I like to do with all my guests is I like to um, establish the ethos. And so um, before we begin, can you tell me um, what is your background, you know, being as an a ME, um, member of the European Parliament, European Parliament or MEP, and what do you actually, did you campaign for? What was your time like there?
1: So I became a member of the European Parliament in 2014. I think it was very much an eye-opener to me because I'd heard all the stories of how people who were in favour of the European Union would be incredibly negative uh, and hostile towards people who were against the European Union. And I'd heard those stories, but it really just brought it home to me. The first time that I attended my first committee meeting and they were ch- choosing, basically, the, uh, the chairs and vice-chairs of the committees. And I watched as not only those who were anti-European Union, because each committee operated according to a set of rules. So, uh, so different political groupings would have the chair of one committee or the vice-chair of another or the third vice-chair of another committee. And that would all be allocated according to the number of seats they had in the European Parliament. And the first, the very first experience for me was watching as they threw out their own methods of doing things and decided instead to take anybody who held even a moderate Eurosceptic position and say, no, you're not going to be a, a, a third vice chair of this committee. We're going to put somebody who, uh, who is a Eurofederalist in there instead and to me the whole idea that you kind of want to work together even if you've got different political opinions and fundamentally different political opinions you should go into politics for a positive reason you should go into politics because you believe in making your country your neighborhood the world a better place and so to me that should work regardless and. What I found was it was incredibly difficult to actually work together with colleagues from the other side of the aisle, as it were, who held to different opinions, even when you happened to, for once, be on the same side. So, for example, I was on the, uh, the Budgetary Control Committee, which dealt with how the European Union had spent its money. Now, as a Eurosceptic, obviously, I would want the European Union, not to have wasted money. If it's wasting money, it needs to be highlighted so that it can stop wasting British taxpayers' money. If you're pro-European Union, it should be highlighted so that it can stop wasting European taxpayers' money. So there should be a consensus. There should be a way to work together on that. And yet, we saw time and time again that actually there was no... Ability to have that meeting of the mind. There was no way to work together. So, yes, I'd already gone into the European Parliament believing that the European Union project was one which was bad for the United Kingdom. But that view really cemented within the first couple of months of being there. And so I became much... I'd always been sure that I wanted Britain to leave the European Union, but now I saw it up close and personal. And, uh, and so, yes, very much, I was campaigning for Brexit, for Britain's exit from the European Union uh, for quite a long time, and, and certainly from my point of view, rightly so. All
0: right. And so just to back up a little bit, so um, what is a Eurosceptic? And you kind of talked about maybe what's also conversed on the other side. What is, um, uh, I guess, pro-European, as you, as you described
1: So this is one of these things which is on the spectrum. So when I talked about a Eurofederalist, I meant basically somebody who believes that we should have, in a sense, a United States of Europe, so that each nation within the European Union should have possibly fewer rights than each state within the United States of America, that the main overarching body they believe should be the European Union, and the nation states should just be satellites of it. So, so I'd see a Eurofederalist as somebody who's trying to build that supranational federal state. Mm. I would see somebody who's pro-European Union as being somebody who accepted the status quo and maybe wanted it to go a little bit further. The status quo at the time was... That Britain was a member of the European Union, that the European Union passed regulations and directives which became law in the United Kingdom. And without getting too much bogged down in the technical details yet, effectively the principle was that European Union law overrode UK law, overrode French law, overrode German law, overrode the laws of any. Of the twenty-eight member states of the European Union at that time, and so someone who is pro-European Union agreed with that that framework and more competences, more powers to be transferred from the member states up to the European Union. Somebody who is a Eurosceptic now that could be a very very broad term because that could refer to somebody who thought that. The process of EU enlargement, the process of EU integration, the treaties, had just gone too far and they wanted to roll it back slightly. Or it could refer to somebody who believed that the whole European Union project was unsalvageable and that the entire thing could be disintegrated. (laughs) So you've got this, this spectrum of opinion. And I suppose where I found myself on that spectrum was to say, well, I don't believe that this is in the United Kingdom's interest to be a member of the European Union, but actually I don't have an opinion on whether France or Slovakia or Sweden should be a member of the European Union. That's their decision as sovereign nations for them to take, and there might well be different considerations which apply. Hmm. That There is a, certain, there is a, there's a this argument that's made that, the, that there's almost this sense of exceptionalism going on, I don't think that's what it's what it is. I, I genuinely believe that there are substantive differences with the British legal system to the continental European legal systems, with the way that we do our trade to whether the European Union uh, generally does its trade. Um, there are so many substantive differences that actually it would be perfectly reasonable for somebody to conclude that, for example, the United Kingdom should should leave the European Union, uh, but that, for example, Luxembourg would be better off staying in. So it's perfectly reasonable that people might have a different view for different countries as to what's right. And so my view was the UK should leave, but I don't feel some need to tell other countries that they should dismantle the entire project. That's a, diff- that's a decision for other countries to take. Is it de- in their interest to be a member of the European Union, or is it not? That- that's none of my business. So that's basically where I stood on that spectrum.
0: Okay, yeah, no, that definitely sounds a bit more very kind of libertarian or not libertarian. Um, very more moderate, more of like you know this ain't working for us, but if it's working for y'all, you you go ahead and do it. So, I yeah, I definitely like, I can respect that.
1: When when it comes to that that argument, I suppose that this is where my political philosophy comes from. I take a view that on any issue, I start off from the libertarian perspective with a small L. So I ask the question. Does the government really need to get involved in this? And then there are some times when that should be overridden. There are some times when, yes, there is an overwhelming case why the government should get involved. And so that's why I describe myself as small L libertarian rather than capital L libertarian. Because sometimes the answer is yes, actually, there is an overwhelming case for government. And at that point, I I wouldn't argue, but... You start off with the question: Does this really need the state to be intervening in individual citizens' daily lives? Be prepared to listen. Be prepared to be overruled. But that—that's basically my fundamental philosophy.
0: Okay. All right. well, thank you. Yeah, know I definitely agree, I think that's very, very sensible too. So, all right. And so, the next point that we'll be getting into is: uh, Well, uh, most of my uh, American colleagues don't know what the European Union is or now even says I don't, I don't even know how it really how it functions but what exactly is the european union that is such a simple question and such a difficult one to answer
1: because it is so complex to explain and it's one of those things which i could spend a couple of hours explaining it and you still wouldn't have all the nuances so it's the most basic the European Union is a collection of 27 now, it was 28 before Brexit, 27 nations which decided to, over a period of time, group together and form a political and economic union. And so that means that probably on the, on the more basic side of things that they agree common standards for goods and services. So that if somebody sells something from one member state of the European Union to another member state, then they're doing so with a level playing field, and that sort of that reason, that idea of having this uh, what was called the common market back in the day before I was born, sort of made a made a certain degree of sense. The idea that you'd get this frictionless trade between countries would be quite useful. What perhaps becomes a little bit more difficult is when any free trade agreement negotiated, it cannot now be negotiated by the members of the European Union, but has to be negotiated by the European Union as a whole. Mm. And so that will then mean that if it's in one country's best interest, for example, I don't know, just to pluck something out of thin air, to do a deal which involves agriculture with a third country, But it's not in the interests of the other 26 member states to do a deal involving agriculture with that country. They can't do that deal. So this is where the European Union starts to uh, interfere with the the sovereignty of member states. So there's this sense in which the European Union is what they describe very much as a a pooling of sovereignty. Uh, But when you pool sovereignty, in my view, you dilute it. I don't think sovereignty is something which can reasonably be pooled in the way that uh, in the way that the European Union does. So economically, the European Union has uh, has that approach. It has now a high representative for foreign affairs, uh, which is effectively that it has its own foreign policy. It has its own foreign minister, in effect. And so there's an element in which the European Union attempt to agree uh, common foreign policy goals and, in terms, of, uh, and in, in terms of that there's very much a move towards a common, a common security and defence policy and certainly there are those who are very much pushing the idea of an EU army. As these things happen, when power is transferred from member states to the European Union in one area It then becomes the question of, well, if we've transferred this, doesn't it also make logical sense to transfer Mm. that? And so we then get proposals for a European public prosecutor's office, for example. Or we had something that sounded very good, the idea for a European arrest warrant. So the idea was that if somebody was arrested in Germany for a crime committed in the United Kingdom, that, the, that, that we could issue a European arrest warrant and demand that uh, that person's return to the United Kingdom, and the same would apply in reverse. So, so there was a there was a certain sense behind the idea. The problem behind the idea was that we've had bilateral extradition treaties with countries dating back to I think the 13th century. Extradition treaties are nothing new. But generally speaking, there is some attempt to weigh up the strength of the case against the individual, which is part of the protection that you have as a citizen of your home country. So, if I, as a British citizen, were to be accused of a crime in another country, I would hope that my country would afford me the protection of a court hearing which actually looks at the question of whether or not there's any evidence to support the accusation against me before they deliver me off to another country. So this whole thing with the European Union becomes you've got little bits of ideas that make a certain degree of sense, but then over time, they morph into something bigger and bigger as they're amended. And as the proposal comes through, it goes from something which is an idea which initially makes a certain degree of sense and is superficially appealing, to a system which in practice erodes the rights, the fundamental rights of citizens. And so, so the European Union becomes this huge political and economic bloc, which is quite insular and quite protectionist because it sees itself as the European Union protecting its own interests against the wider world. So you get this strange, this strange situation where on the one hand, people who supported Brexit were being accused of being and protectionist. And actually, people supporting Brexit were genuine, genuinely looking at the whole world and saying, we actually need to negotiate our trade arrangements not just with the countries that are our closest neighbours, but also with the whole world. Uh, and, and yet, the European Union was actually the one being protectionist. And it's quite a, hmm. quite a strange argument, because... The roles ended up being reversed within the debate. Uh, But basically, to, to sum up the answer to your question, the European Union is a political and economic union of 27 nations where sovereignty is pooled or diluted to transfer power from the nation state to the European
0: Union. Alrighty, so then my next question I do have is: I ask, what is because I know at least in the states, um, we have no idea what uh, a parliamentary system is, and frankly, with um, how the how with the European Union, how do they decide uh, how many members of parliament um, that each nation gets?
1: Uh, So the European Parliament uh, consisted of seven hundred and fifty members of the European Parliament. Uh, they were elected by a system of proportional representation. Uh, it was the De Hont allocation, which I can explain in detail if you have any particular political anoraks on your show, but, uh, but essentially the idea was that if a party gets 20% of the vote in a certain area, it should get roughly 20% of the seats in that area. Those 750 MEPs were then elected across a multitude of parties. If I count it up, I think there's were, there were something like nine or 10 different political parties represented out of the UK's allocation of seats alone. Uh, the UK had something like 72 seats and maybe 10 different political parties having, having those seats. If we then look at other countries of the European Union, they all have their own parties as well so you'd have in every country you'd have all these different political parties so they'd all be elected and once they're elected of course they have to form political groups so then you'd find yourself working with like-minded parties in other countries and forming a group with them and so the parliament formed itself into at the time i think it was seven political groups And then there were a number of MEPs left over who weren't in one of those groups. Now, what that does is, and the reason I say I'm not sure how much of a parliamentary system this is, is that it leaves you with a situation in which you you don't have a government which can be voted in and voted out. Mm. And a lot of the power in the European Union actually isn't, residing with the elected parliament at all. So the European Union runs basically across three different institutions. But there's the European Commission, uh, which is the, the, the political driver of the European Union, and that is appointed, not elected. There's the European Parliament, which receives the laws from the European Commission and accepts them, rejects them, or amends them, And then there's the European Council, which is basically uh, a representative from each national government within the uh, European Union. So those three institutions have a very complex interaction. So if you look at the European Parliament, you're really only looking at one third of the picture. The whole thing is incredibly complex. And there was a famous question, I think it was uh, the left-winger actually, Uh, Tony Benn, And he was was a a socialist, but he was one who truly believed in his principles. And he was anti-European Union right through his career. And he basically said that he had tests for democracy. He said, what power do you hold? He said, "Uh, how do you get that power? How can you exercise that power? And how do we get that power back? And how do we vote you out if we don't believe you're doing a good job? And the problem with that European Union system is that you can't, you, there's no democratic way in which the public can vote out the commission. But there's no way that the public can vote out the European Council. And even with the European parliament, it's incredibly difficult because there's over 100 political parties representing in that 750 seats. So this is why I said at the start, somewhat jokingly, I'm not entirely sure this is a parliamentary system What we're discussing.
0: And so what, as as you were a member of the European Parliament, um, what was your day-to-day as an MEP? That's,
1: again, incredibly varied. Out of each month, there was one week which was devoted to Strasbourg. And that was the culmination of the month's work effectively. There would be the parliamentary debates, there would be the parliamentary votes. You'd often have to vote over a thousand times in a single week in Strasbourg. So those were very intense and very much to do with trying to understand a huge amount of legislation all at the same time. There would then be one week in the month which was designated as a constituency week, and that constituency week would be the time that you're supposed to spend back in your constituency. So in my case in North East England, and representing the people who live there. Then the other two weeks in the month generally were in Brussels, and that was the committees. On your particular committee, you would be scrutinising that legislation in a lot greater de- detail than you would if, uh, if it's someone else's committee. So when it comes to Strasbourg, you kind of already know the nuances of the legislation that's gone through your committee. You just don't know the nuances of the legislation on the other 19 committees or whatever it was. So it's very varied. And of course, there's always things that cut across at uh, those different those different things. So, some days were designated for your cross-national political group. Because you would work together with other parties believing the same thing, or similar things, you were supposed to have meetings with those parties on certain days. Well, fair enough, but at the same time, if I had a TV interview come up in London, then maybe that TV interview where I could explain the actual job I was doing was more important than me sitting in a group meeting where actually my presence didn't actually make the slightest bit of difference because those decisions were being made elsewhere. Um, Those decisions were being made between the leaders of of each party in the European Parliament rather than by a full meeting of a group. There was always this this conflict between what the job should be and what the job was in practice. And also the question with regard to taxpayers' money. So if there's a week when I had no committee and I only had group meetings, well, is it a good use of taxpayers' money for the taxpayer to fund the travel, the accommodation, etc for me to go along to sit in a group meeting but not do any actual legislative work or is it better for me to spend that time actually doing the job of representing my constituents And so there were a lot of times when different MEPs would take a very different approach to how they to how they did those things so some people would prioritize one thing over another and I think that's just the nature of the European Union system and a question of what can you achieve with your time? And time management was always something that was very much on my mind.
0: Gotcha. I know that must have been, I'm pretty sure I'm a little, little stressful trying to figure that out. Like, what's the what's best, uh, I guess, how to best balance your time out, uh, either sit in this meeting or not, you know? And so I, oh, man, don't, yeah. man.
1: Often I'd come to a different conclusion to some of my colleagues, and it was interesting. Somebody could be in the same party and they would prioritize different things very much differently to me. Some of them would go to absolutely every single committee meeting and every single group meeting. Some of them would barely bother with their own committees and say, Well, my job is to represent people in the UK, and I can't make a difference on this committee because I'm going to be outvoted every time. And I was somewhere between the two, you know. I think it's important to, to do the job of the committees, but you know there's
0: this spectrum with, with everything. That's why there are not any simple answers to, to these questions. This concludes this episode of the Moderate Review. Please join us next time where Jonathan talks about why a country would or would not want to join the European Union and why the UK decided to leave. Until next time, I'm your host, Jack Taggart. The views expressed in the moderate review are solely of the individuals participating, and not necessarily of the organizations they are affiliated with. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please tell your friends, and please follow us on Twitter at tmodrev, that is the letter T, mod, rev, one word. Until next time, I'm your host, Jack Taggart.